0: This episode contains coarse language, stories of drug abuse, sexual situations, occult themes, and described acts of violence. Discretion is advised. Diversion Podcasts. Since the 1980s, many rock and metal musicians have lost their lives due to the addictive lure of the most intoxicating street drug of all, heroin. These include Alice in Chains vocalist Lane Staley, Dee Dee Ramone, Rats' Robin Crosby, God's Tim Hemminsley, and ex marilyn Manson member Gidget Gine. Nationwide statistics support the sobering edict of heroin as an angel of death. Between 2016 and 2018, there were approximately 15,000 heroin overdoses a year, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse Statistics. In 2019, the most recent year for which the organization secured data, there were 14,019 heroin fatalities. Yet heroin isn't exterminating headbangers the way it did in the 80s. One of the last metal celebrities to lose his life to the drug was Dave Brockie, also known as Odorous urungus from the band Guar. Brocky was just a recreational heroin user, but he suffered a fatal overdose in 2014. And ex-Faith No More vocalist Chuck Mosley died in 2017 from the drug. Of course, way too many musicians are still dying from drug overdoses. It's just not heroin or other illicit drugs. Prescription medications like OxyContin and fentanyl not powder packets, spoons, and syringes, have taken the lead as pharmaceutical agents of Satan. In 2019, approximately 56,000 Americans across the country overdosed on drugs other than heroin. And over the past five years, benzodiazepines, antidepressants, opiates, and alcohol have led to the early demise of Static X's Wayne Static, Avenged Sevenfolds the Rev, Slipknot's Paul Gray, and Power Trip's Riley Hale, among others. Clearly, prescription drugs can be just as addictive and dangerous as heroin. But being a junkie requires a higher level of commitment and a greater acceptance of consequences. Some celebrities that die from pill overdoses weren't even aware that they could die. By contrast, heroin users are at least cognizant of the very real possibility that their overindulgence might kill them. And some willingly accept the possibility. I Hate God vocalist Mike Williams is a prime example of a formerly drug-addicted frontman who believed in the nihilistic, live fast, die young, nola-metal aesthetic. This self-destructive approach to life and performing made I Hate God a thrilling band to watch. When they were on, they were volatile, unpredictable, and their doomy, sludgy riffs burned like hot tar. But any given night, they could completely fall apart. Or worse, one or more of the band members might pass out or even drop dead on stage.
1: I don't know where that comes from. Just, I always thought bands should be exciting, you know, and we knew that it was terrible, but it was just a necessity. That's how we wanted to, you know, do it. So there was people that were totally addicted. I ended up, you know, passed out behind the drums and things like that. And forgot that I was even on stage and, you know, having that uh, that attitude of just wanting to die, but drinking, and doing too many drugs, you know, but yeah, I mean, I get anxiety and depression like a lot of people. I mean, there was a time, you know, just... Being a young punk rocker and stuff, thinking like I'll not live to 30, and really not really cared about that, you know, not caring if I did or not.
0: In volume two of the Backstaged episode, Heroin, Absolute Evil, we'll delve deeper into the ultimate form of excess, discuss some of the different motivations that led artists to the devil's drug, examine the AIDS and heroin related death of rap guitarist Robin Crosby, and hear from some of the most colorful individuals that have seen the needle and the damage done, and resurface from the mire to tell some pretty insane stories of stupidity and survival. Frequently, junkies are too far gone to do more than mumble. If they didn't have a strong ego and the gift for gab to begin with, even after they're clean, many don't remember or choose to forget their life as a junkie and are unable or unwilling to entertain the public with recollections of their surreal experiences. That's why it sometimes takes a bystander to recall some of the more visceral and impacting tales of addiction. And that's partially because junkies act like junkies every day. Nothing they do is particularly insane for them. That's not the case for the sober bystander, however. Alan Niven who managed Guns N' Roses during the most perilous period of their career, as Appetite for Destruction was going supernova, will never forget his days having to babysit the band.
2: We were on our way to Japan, and his sidles up next to me, and he goes, dude, I got my stash. I'm set. And I go, what the fuck are you talking about? What do you mean? And he had this little boombox, and he proceeds to show me where he's secreted it inside the boom box underneath the battery compartment. And I'm looking at him and I'm going, you're out of your tiny fucking mind going to get rid of that right now. Really nervous? Yeah, get fucking rid of it. I mean, the rules are simple. You never, you never buy and you never carry and you never cross an international boundary with anything, you know. Those those are standard operating rules. So off he went and came back, and yeah, he got rid of it all right. He passed out on the floor next to me. We had to carry him onto the flight. And Slash was in no better condition either for similar reasons, because you know, Slash came up to me after I dealt with Izzy, you know, and I said, "Do you?" Have you got anything? And he goes, "Well, you, you know, just for the trip. No, go get rid of it fucking now. <laughs> so, you know, for them, getting rid of it means I'll have it all now. Waste not want not. And they were both in a dreadful state. In fact, ironically, I, could, I didn't get on the flight because Axel didn't turn up. So I had to stay and wait for Axel. But I heard that Izzy was still out of it when they got to um, Narita. And they had to wheel him through immigration and customs in a cart. And then when Izzy did come to, he looked out the window and went, where the fuck am I? Called Stephen in his room and said, Stephen, where are we? Where are we, man? And Stephen's going, Tokyo, dude, we're in Tokyo. We're in Japan. Look out the window. It looks different, doesn't it? And Izzy's going, we're in Tokyo? Really? I mean, he was out of it.
0: Not all addicts start using heroin to escape reality. Many turn to the drug to deal with severe pain. Sometimes it's psychological, but in many cases, it's physical. Nirvana's late frontman, Kurt Cobain, started shooting up because it was the only way to stop incapacitating stomach aches. Doctors were unable to diagnose. And Pantera's Philip Anselmo used heroin to numb debilitating back damage that accrued from years of jumping off 10-foot-high stage monitors, frantically banging his head on stage, and pushing his body beyond human limits. Sure, Anselmo enjoyed the effects of the narcotic as well. So much, in fact, that he quickly became addicted and battled for years to kick. In one of our last conversations about dope, Anselmo referred to the drug as absolute evil and explained how the substance left him literally broken.
3: Far Beyond Driven came out. It was number one and all that shit. There was some point previous to that on the Vulgar Display of Power tour where I fucking had ruptured a goddamn disc in my lower back and, man, talk about Superman getting his cape ripped off of him. It felt very humbling, very uh I felt vulnerable for the first time in a long time. I didn't know what the fuck to do, so when that uh far beyond driven came out, I had mixed emotions because I was in a lot of fucking pain, and I knew there would be an ensuing world fucking tour. I knew all this you know mm. going into that, so for me to feel vulnerable, I was like a caged animal. I was damaged goods. Goddamn, I was damaged goods no matter what it looked like. I was, that was the start of my free fall, Mm. because I was in a lot of pain. You know, so I felt cornered, and yep, painkillers, muscle relaxers, any fucking thing I could get my fucking hands on, as long as it numbed out that fucking knife that I felt in my fucking spine, in the center of my body, before I had to go out there and fucking go ape shit for the kids. I would I, fuck yeah, I was doing you know? And there's no denying it, and there's no hiding it. Fuck no, man, I was annihilated. Then you get on the heroin calendar. That's what I call it, where you can't say no to anybody, and you're obligated to be in eight places at one time you've done forgotten how many people you said yes to. Mm. And then you let them all down. That's where everyone ends up. Mm. That's how they get lost. That's how all the friends are gone. That's how the parents disappear and then they're alone in a car if they're lucky. I said it in the song and I mean it. There ain't no motherfucking such a thing as a fucking great a junkie story, you know, as a happy ending for a junkie. Mm-hmm. Lest he comes
0: out of it. In 2011, about six years before former autograph and Mark Lanigan drummer Kenny Richards died in a mysterious drug-related homicide, I enjoyed a spirited conversation with him about partying on Sunset Strip with David Lee Roth and Motley Crue, rocking with David Bowie and Tin Machine, joining a post autograph band with Bowie guitarist Earl Slick, and becoming soulmates with Lanigan. He also became a respected painter. For most of the 80s, Richards did blow, pills, and regularly drank, but he never did heroin. He cleaned up between 1987 and 1994. Then, like Anselmo, he suffered debilitating back pains, and after undergoing corrective neck surgery for his chronic back injury, Richards got hooked on opiates. To tell a familiar story, one thing led to another.
4: After being clean for nine years, I had a neck surgery, and my mind, was taking Percocet and said, oh, this is opiate-based, and I've always wanted to try heroin. I've been to New York, and, you know, I'm an addict. I think I'll try some. I won't be a relapse because I'm on opiates anyways for my neck surgery. Mm. So that's how an addict thinks. So for three weeks, I'm scoring heroin, and I'm, you know, smoking it not listening to music. For the fourth week, I stopped listening to music. On the sixth week, it had me, you know, and I have no rhyme or reason for it.
0: The endless chronicle of heroin and opiate abuse is filled with tragedy and death. That said, some musicians that battle addiction, such as Phil Anselmo and Slash, are able to get clean and rebuild their lives. In retrospect, these guys can look through the rearview mirror of their heroin years and remember all the wild, outrageous times they had. If they're good storytellers, they can rattle off captivating tales that sound like pages from a Hunter S. Thompson novel. Which brings us back to Jane's Addiction, a band full of musicians with different musical influences, strong opinions, and appetites for annihilation. It's that combination that made the band so exciting in its prime. And throughout their early years, kept them one bad choice away from a beautiful disaster, on stage and off. The night they were scheduled to headline the legendary Madison Square Garden for the first time, they were in classic form. As Navarro explains,
1: Biggest show of our lives at that time, you know? Jane's Addiction, the little band from L.A., the Triple X indie label band that nobody gave the time of day to, the fucking weirdos that didn't know who they were or what their, their their music sounded like and they couldn't agree on anything. they junkies. Those guys playing Madison Square Garden, it was a fucking big deal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, because alternative bands didn't fill places like that back then. You know? And then, uh, so, of course, Eric and I need to get good and high before the show. So we take a cab... To Alphabet City, which at that time was really dangerous, mm-hmm. and that's where you would escort heroin, that's where you would get street street drugs. You had to get out of the car, you had to walk around, you had to look for somebody and to find somebody, and then he knew somebody. You find you would end up in some, you know, yeah, man, go up to uh, fourth floor and it's four E and then knock twice, and it's one of those kind of worlds, right? Like you could, dudes open the door with guns and fucking, you know, the gun pointed at your head. What do you want? Blah blah blah. And I meanwhile, I'm dressed in full stage, like alternative Raggedy Ann, whatever I looked at like back then <laughs> with dreadlocks, with dreadlocks, you know? And uh, we scored dope and like we do it. And kind of nod out for a little while. And I come to and Eric's nodded out. and I'm like, bro, we got a show tonight. And it was like 20 minutes from set, from start time. And we're like nodding out in alphabet city so, and there's no cell phones, there's no computers. Management doesn't know where we are. Perry and Steve doesn't know where we are. Like Nobody knows where we are. And, and frankly, we don't know where we are. Mm-hmm. All we know is that in 20 minutes, it's down deep for
0: uh, our biggest show of our lives.
1: And all hey, let's go, let's go. We find a cab, get to the fucking Madison Square Garden.
0: Of course, the story doesn't end there. It would be anticlimactic if Dave and Eric walked into the venue, displayed their backstage passes, and stormed right onto the stage to perform the show of their lives. Bargaining with the devil was never so easy.
1: Back then, you know, we just were like punks. No one would let us in. But like, no, 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 we're playing here tonight, we're playing here tonight. Yeah, you got, not without a wristband, you're not. Like that <laughs> kind of shit, right? Yeah. And like, you gotta let us in. Everybody's in there waiting for us. You're holding up the show. Well, you got to go talk to the guy. So we run around the back and blah, blah, blah. We talk our way down into this gate and we're fucking loaded. And everybody's freaking out. And the circus is in town and the circus is in Madison Square Gardens. But when they have other events, they put all the circus shit down below. Right. So we're running down underneath Madison Square Gardens. At this point, we're 15 minutes late and we're so high and nobody knows where we are. And we realized we're running by like tigers and elephants. Like they, all the cages of of the circus animals were down there, and so we're running, hearts pounding, fucking nodding out, fucked up blood down our arms, and there's like wild animals, you know, screaming and clawing at their cages at us, and we really thought we were gonna die. I mean, we really did. It was the most surreal thing, like to be from you know street level junky, you know gutter hype life, to being all of a sudden surrounded by wild animals that we had no idea why they were even there. But we didn't even know the circus were there. Oh wow! We just, we're just running through this thing, and it's like a fucking tiger lunges at the cage. What the fuck? And so, and then to wrap up, uh, wrap it up, you know. We, we end up making the show. We end up late. I don't remember a thing about it, and I don't think he does either. But I remember everything preceding it.
0: Navarro's 2004 book with writer Neil Strauss, Don't Try This at Home, A Year in the Life of Dave Navarro, Chronicles 365 Days of Depravity, Smack-Induced Paranoia, Rambling Confessions, and Complete Meltdowns. It's a truly sordid, grueling memoir by a formerly drug-addled musician. The Heroin Diaries is a great read too, as are the books Slash and Mustaine. But one of the most outrageous heroin memoirs, and I may be a bit biased here, is Ministry frontman Al Jorgensen's Ministry The Lost Gospels According to Al Jorgensen. It's a book I wrote with Al based on about 25 hours of interviews that I conducted with him over several weeks at his compound in El Paso, where he lived between 2005 and 2015. During the interviews, there was plenty of wine and beer and an abundance of weed, and I'm not sure how my lungs and liver survived the adventure. But many of the stories Al told me are worth their weight in black tar heroin a substance he injected regularly for 18 years. A quick note here. Al's been narcotics-free since 2003. Despite nearly two decades of harrowing addiction, Jurgensen remains musically prolific, mentally sharp, and funny as a stand-up comic. He even puts a hilarious spin on his gut-wrenching heroin experiences. One of Jurgensen's favorite yarns involves counterculture writer William S. Burroughs, whose voice ministry sampled for the song Just One Fix from their 1992 album Psalm 69, The Way to Succeed and The Way to Suck Eggs. When the time came to shoot a video for the song, Burroughs agreed to be filmed reading a new spoken word passage. A longtime Burroughs fan, Jurgensen was stoked, but he knew that if he was going to drive from Austin, Texas, to Lawrence, Kansas, to meet and perform with one of his all-time heroes, he'd have to be wasted. In true junkie fashion, Al and guitarist Mike Skasha lost track of time and arrived at Burroughs' house three days late. At first, the cantankerous beat writer wasn't too happy to see them, but not for the reasons you might expect. Here's Al's recollection of his first run-in with Burroughs, with whom he later became close friends.
5: We had like, you know, instructions on how to get to his house. We tried to school in Kansas City before we got there because we knew we only had enough dope for ourselves and we figured Bill would probably want some. So we tried to stop in Kansas City, in this ghetto neighborhood. I don't know Kansas City for my fucking ass or elbow, man. But we're driving around this ghetto area looking for somebody on a corner, you know. We got chased out by the cops because two white guys in you know, slum area, ghetto area, it's like it's pretty obvious what we're trying to do Mm -hmm. so the cops chase us out so then we said fuck it let's just go to bill's house so we drive down to bill's knock on his door he answers the door first thing he says is are you holding like he didn't even say hello (laughs) that's the first thing he said so are you holding And then he said, I can smell a junkie a mile away. (laughs) I can smell a junkie a mile away. And we're like, "Uh, we only had enough to keep ourselves like from not getting sick. Mm -hmm. So I was like, no. So he slammed the door on our face. So we drove back to Kansas City to the same neighborhood. Cruised around the ghetto, which you know, it's, it's like a 35 mile drive or something. Only this time we found a kid on the corner that sold us a shitload, like probably about 800 bucks worth of dope. So he was happy, we were happy. We went back to Bill's house, and uh, he opens the door, he goes, Oh, it's you again. <laughs> He knew we had to do a video with us. He already agreed to it, but he's like, "Oh, it's you again." And we're like, "No, no, no! It's different this time. We're whole. Come on in."
0: A masterful yarn spinner, Jurgensen gleefully tells decadent anecdotes in vivid detail. As with Nikki Six, it's amazing he can remember what went down during those years, and he didn't even write it down in a diary. At the same time, he emphasizes that his stories of death-defying madness are, once again, cautionary tales. At one point, we were even talking about subtitling his memoir, A Series of Cautionary Tales. Now, let's return to the home of William Burroughs, circa 1993, and the stash of heroin Jurgensen has just delivered to his house. To the eccentric writer's delight, Al hands him the drugs directly circumnavigating his handler, James Groholtz.
5: So we go into Bill's living room, and right away, he goes to the bedroom. As soon as we told him we were holding him. And and here's the funny part, is that Bill was like a giddy little kid, man. Because James usually put a kibosh on this shit. He was strictly on the methadone program, he wasn't shooting, he hated coke, so james would keep him on the straight and narrow but james had the flu so i didn't meet james for like day three of that shoot mm-hmm. uh, day three that i was there let alone they were there three days before i even got there so uh he was sick with the flu so bill was just like i think that's why like he took advantage of the like you know daddy's away <laughs> i will play you know it's like He was sick with the flu. Bill's having us scramble around for fucking heroin everywhere, and uh, we got it. So we go in and shoot up, and he he brings out this, like, Pulp Fiction 1950s leather belt with 1950s needles. Like, really old school. It was kind of... I've never seen anything like that. Big metal syringe with the... uh... Yeah, it was the whole deal. Mm-hmm. Like, it was exactly like Pulp Fiction. This whole scene was surreal. I can't believe, first of all, we weren't arrested in Kansas City after going back twice. Mm-hmm. And now I'm sitting in William Burroughs' living room, shooting up in this like old school, like like we had like our little like Udex, you know, like normal needles, and he had like this elaborate, 1950s setup. so we all shoot up and uh passed out for a while i still haven't said anything to this guy and he hasn't said anything to me because you know uh, outside of oh you're holding you know fuck you slam the door this and that we get back okay come on in that's it that's my only conversations it was it was very quiet and we all just shot up and then we passed out. Then I wake up and I see a letter from the White House, from the fucking White House on his table, unopened. And I was like, Bill, you got a letter from the White House here. It's like, "Yeah, it's what? it's junk mail. <laughs> I was like, you gonna open it? He's like, no. It's like, well, can I open it? Yeah, whatever. So I opened it, and it was a letter from Bill Clinton saying he wanted Bill to speak at some room at the White House, I forget what room, but, uh, you know, he wanted him to do spoken word at the White House. I was pretty impressed by that. So I was like, tell him that, and he's like, who's the president now? He didn't even know it was Clinton. He had no idea, not a fucking clue. And he didn't give a shit. And when I read it to him and shit, he's like, I've never heard of him, don't click. <laughs> and he wouldn't go, he never did it. He had a letter from the White House on his desk and he never went and he never acknowledged it. And he's just like, that's jacked That guy was awesome. So what do you talk about, petunias? That's all he talked about. His petunia garden in his backyard, which wasn't even that impressive, it was just like, Psychopath, like the size of this tape, he had some petunias, but they were all fucked up because he kept telling me raccoons kept fucking up his petunia brother. That's all this guy wanted to talk about. He was obsessed with his petunias. So he's allowed a pellet gun from his manager. He's not allowed to have real guns anymore because he's already shot his wife <laughs> right off and shit like that, you know? they so, yeah, that. a pellet gun. And he's been trying to catch these raccoons in his petunia garden forever. And uh, I knew he was on the methadone program, so I go, well, why don't you put out some methadone wafers out there? Maybe the r- raccoons will eat it. And that will slow him down enough so you can catch him with your pellet gun. I I could see he was thinking about it. So we got done shooting up and all that stuff. And I went to the hotel to meet the band and the video crew and this and that. Blah, blah, blah. And I left Bill alone that night. The next day, he was about four hours late for shooting. Well, I was like three days late, but he was like four hours late. So we're all sitting around. And he comes in. Like, he's the grumpiest bastard I've ever met. But he comes in all smiles, like all happy. Because he shot two raccoons that day. Because he took my suggestion and the raccoons ate the methadone and it slowed him down enough to where Bill could kill him with a pellet gun. So he was ecstatic, man. He came in so happy, he told me I'm an astute young man. <laughs> <laughs> And so we got along ever since, up up till his death. He would call me about once a week and bitch me out for doing coke. You know, his exact quote was Why would a person do a drug that keeps you up all night twitching? Stick to heroin, kid. (laughs) Like
0: that. That's just one of the countless experiences Jurgensen showered me with between bottles of red wine and weed hits during the three weeks we spent together. And I'm not gonna lie, it was really funny, captivating stuff. But before we cross that line and go, hey, wait a minute, this sounds cool, this seems fun. This isn't gonna convince anyone to stay away from heroin. Well, first of all, that's not my job. People should do whatever they want as long as they're not hurting anyone else, just with the understanding that they're responsible for their actions. Remember what Aleister Crowley said, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Having said that, the inevitable rise and fall of a junkie left Jurgensen in the unenviable position of losing everything he cherished, being practically penniless and pathetically addicted, and feeling hopeless and suicidal. In the late 90s, as a popular rock star, he was royalty. Replete with handlers, accountants, and management, as an addict, he was more like a homeless man.
5: Look, your bills are paid by, supposedly paid, by like these the people thing. in New York or New Jersey, and they take care of everything, and you're insulated from everything. And uh, so I didn't really see it coming. And all of a sudden it's like, you have to vacate your house, with you sell your house. I got arrested, sleeping on a dealer's floor. I've sold everything, I've lost my family. Lost everything. I mean, I bottomed out. I'd lost all my cars. I had Ferraris and shit and all that stuff, except for a pickup truck. And I was sleeping on a crack dealer's, this old black lady's couch. I was sleeping in North Austin in a fucking crackdown. And they cut me off of money. My accountant, everyone, Barker, this and that. I'm out know tough love kind of thing mm-hmm. I woke up on this couch and I asked the guy I was like I, I just want to fucking kill myself that that's what drugs do mm-hmm. they keep you in denial about what's reality and so I, I really didn't notice it until I woke up on this couch you know and uh, asked for a gun I mean I bottomed him that And since that day, I'm touched to Well, outside of pop.
0: I'm John Wiederhorn, host of Backstaged: The Devil in Metal. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, and join us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, at Backstaged Podcast, to discuss the show and all things metal. You can also email your thoughts, comments, and questions to Backstaged at DiversionPodcasts.com That's podcasts, plural. Backstaged at DiversionPodcasts.com Probably the biggest figure from the Sunset Strip metal scene to succumb to a highly visible long-term struggle with heroin was guitarist Robin Crosby from R.A.T. Crosby was formerly roommates with Nikki Sixx and the two discovered smack together in the early 80s. For a while, Crosby contained his addiction, riding a rock and roll roller coaster through sold out arenas highlighted by barrels of booze, willing groupies, and sold out tours. Since other members of his band were also abusing drugs and alcohol, it took a while before anyone knew how badly addicted Crosby had become. Once his playing started to falter, however, the guitarist bounced in and out of rehab, but he always returned to the needle. And while he was able to record his leads for the 1990 album Detonator, he struggled to maintain any sort of professionalism. The band's former drummer Bobby Blotzer says...
3: He was in rehab during Detonator, and I mean, during the rehearsals he was there. But you know, when when it got time to start tracking, just before we were getting ready to start tracking, he, you know, he just had a bit. His his demons were,
4: you know, were at him. And he had to go.
0: Ads guitarist Warren Demartini.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, the the, the playing, was sliding, and and uh, he definitely reached a, a a point where he was. Um, you know, really, really uh, mixed up with that stuff, you know. It, it was just extremely difficult because no one knew really what he was going through. I mean, he said, you know, one quote I never forgot uh, is that he said, you know, quitting heroin is like quitting breathing. You know, I, I mean, I had no idea to what extent he was struggling with, with, with this stuff because it was just a secretive thing to begin with, you know. So, you know, it, it was a combination of not understanding the problem and not knowing how to help. And, you know, it was difficult for him to even, to just sort of be, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard working with someone in that, in that, that, that's gone that far with that stuff. You know.
0: Crosby just couldn't keep pace with the rest of the band and it got to the point where he was unpredictable on stage. While on tour in Japan, he was so far gone when the group was playing one of its signature tunes, you're in love. That he missed a major musical cue and wound up playing the wrong guitar in the wrong key. Tim Martini concludes,
4: the guitar tech was, you know, yelling that that part had come up, that it was that he had to change guitars, and then he played the whole song in this other tuning, which was, you know, was you know completely unharmonic. You know? I don't know. I mean, it, it was just a, it was a different guitar in a different tuning playing the whole song the thing it was just it was very bizarre i think he was he was trying to to use uh you know alcohol to offset the effects of not having heroin which again we you know i was looking back that was that was probably what it was because we were you know in japan at that time in japan the shows were pretty early i mean we would go on you know pretty early seven and i remember thinking what it was odd to me that that someone would be that that intoxicated by by seven o'clock. You know? and, and and that in itself, you, you know, it, you know, wasn't like, well, you know you, you know you're out of the band and you can't you know you can't come back or anything like that. It was just, it was just a, 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 a sort of an indicator of of how far along this this had gone.
0: The last show of Rat's Japanese tour was in Osaka, and it was Crosby's final gig with the band. When the group came home, Crosby checked into rehab again. He was determined to kick his habit and return to Rat in fighting shape. His bandmates, however, were reluctant to allow him to continue. Rat wanted to move on, and their decision bred outrage and defiance. As vocalist Stephen Piercy explains,
3: he was in a really bad place,
4: and he was vulnerable, and he was resentment, and you know he knew he was in bad shape, but. He still wanted to rat and roll, and that was all good, but if you can't
3: play guitar, you can't, you know, if you can't play, you can't play.
0: Crosby played here and there on various projects in the early 90s. Then, in 1994, he revealed that he was HIV positive. Soon after, the illness developed into full-blown AIDS. In 2002, Crosby died of a heroin overdose With AIDS-related pneumonia, he was 42.
4: I can speak for me personally. Yeah, it hit me hard because he was my right-hand guy and he was pretty much our, you know, had a lot to do with us. For me, it's the one thing that that seems to just be, you know, there all the time is that it's not something that I can hope to get over as, as much as just something that I, Daily, try to get used to. You know what I mean. There's no sort of closure to the to you know the you know the, you know missing him doesn't doesn't really get any easier as time passes along. It's it's you know it's it's pretty much you know it stays the same. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's. I think it's something everyone deals with if you if you live long enough. But uh, you know, that's definitely you know, something I, I've, you know, I, that, I,
5: that I deal with and you know, I think about. Heroin use and heroin-related overdose deaths are increasing among people from all walks of life in the United States. Most people are using it with other drugs, especially prescription opioid painkillers. Using heroin, along with other drugs or alcohol, compounds the risk of overdose. Everyone can learn about the risks of using heroin and other drugs. And you, or a loved one, can get help for substance abuse problems and learn how to recognize and respond to an overdose. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vitalscience. That's cdc.gov slash vitalscience.
0: Backstaged, The Devil in Metal, is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio and is available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, John Wiederhorn. produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Cal. Production assistance from Anita Okoye, and our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Clem Fandango is our technical producer, and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive Producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Thanks for listening to Backstage, The Devil in Metal. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to check out my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends on Diversion Books. To purchase
5: John's book, please go to amazon.com or bookshop.org.
2: Diversion Podcasts.